Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Global Wall Street gathers in Washington with a focus on higher rates, shaky banks, and whether the world's two largest economies can work together. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on whether we're headed for a soft but slow landing after all. I don't see inflation as on a secure path down to the 2% target unless the economy turns over a bit. Glenn Hubbard of Columbia on whether we're headed for a credit crunch and Sonia Gibbs of the IIF on the plight of zombie companies. Higher rates are going to cause a lot of pain, and particularly for these zombie firms. Washington hosted the annual meetings of the IMF and World Bank again this week with a focus on threats to global growth. Treasury Secretary Yellen insisted that things didn't look all that bad. I said that the global economy was in a better place than many predicted last fall. That basic picture has remained largely unchanged. Though IMF Chief Economist Garancha warned that questions about the banks could be a drag on the global economy. The risk that banks are going to look at the outlook, they're going to look at their bottom line, and they're going to be a little bit more prudent in extending loans going forward. And that could weigh down further on economic growth. And geopolitics, particularly the tensions between China and the United States, the world's two largest economies, could make the difference, as acknowledged by Treasury Undersecretary Jay Shambaugh. We obviously need to be able to work together. U.S. CPI numbers came out showing that inflation is still with us, but it appears to be moderating. We know that prices are still too high for uh, so many things across the economy, but certainly we're, we're, we are looking for this downward momentum. 
The markets took all of this, put it together with somewhat weaker retail sales numbers, and came out slightly higher, with the S&P 500 adding eight-tenths of a percent and the Nasdaq up almost three-tenths of a percent, while the yield on the 10-year was up 13 basis points to end the week, just over 3.51 percent. For their thoughts on what we learned this week, we welcome back now Christina Hooper, Invesco Chief Investment Market Strategist, and Sarah Malik. She is Chief Investment Officer at Nuveen. So welcome to both of you. Great to have you back with us. Sarah, let me start with you. What did we learn this week, and specifically about where the economy is headed, maybe more importantly what you think, what the Fed thinks? Is there evidence, in fact, in the CPI and on the numbers that, in fact, we're getting our arms around inflation? Well, we learned that progress is being made on the war against inflation, but economic damage is yet to be seen. We had two data points for the bulls and the bears this week. For the bulls, CPI and PPI both moderating. Great to see sticky areas like shelter starting to become a tailwind. But for the bears, hawkish Fed speak and also negative retail sales for March. That's four out of five months there. And that concerns us that overall, we still have economic downside ahead of us, perhaps lower earnings going forward. And market valuations with the S&P above 4,100 likely has a tough time going 4,200 to 4,400. If it gets to that level, I think we just stay in a trading range and then go back down from there until we clear the decks on what we think is likely coming up which is a mild recession. And the Fed, 25 basis points in May. What do you think, Sarah? We think the Fed is one and done, one more 25 basis point rate hike in May. But what we haven't seen yet is now 13 months ago was just the first Fed rate hike. And we have not seen the effects of monetary tightening through the economy. We did just see it recently with the banking system. I think there's more to come in terms of how higher interest rates are going to impact, for example, the consumer, tighter credit conditions. That's going to impact the economy, which is why we're expecting that slowdown going forward. Christina, one and done. No, I don't think the Fed is going to hike rates again. I think the odds are increasing that they won't, and I think that is the right decision. The Fed has already done enough, and I do believe that they're going to be relatively comfortable with the pace of inflation, especially since we've seen progress made in services x housing, which is the component of inflation that the Fed is laser-focused on. Are they not going to hike rates, Christina, because, in fact, we're headed toward a recession? <laughs> they see that. They're not going to hike rates because inflation is coming down at an appropriate pace that they're comfortable with, and they're not going to hike uh, rates because they know that there are lagged effects of monetary policy. So we haven't yet seen most of the damage that has been done by the aggressive tightening cycle. But no recession, you think? I think that there is a pathway. It has narrowed, but there is a pathway to a semi-soft landing. If we get a recession, I think it's going to be mild. Sarah, recession, no recession? We're in the mild recession camp, and the reason that we think the Fed has more work to do with raising interest rates is because they've been clear that their mandate is 2% inflation as a target. I don't think they're going to take the foot, their foot off the gas until we get closer to that number, and we're just not near that yet. Um, the other uh, thing we're concerned about is earnings. Now, coming into first quarter, it was nice to see that earnings estimates actually were cut to a higher amount than usual. So Q1 earnings maybe come out all right in terms of revenue growth. Margins will continue to be compressed for this quarter and going forward. And I think that positive revenue growth we see this quarter may have difficulty holding up because revenues have been growing because of pricing power. And as inflation continues to moderate, companies may lose their pricing power. Sarah, what about credit? There's a lot of talk about a credit crunch, whatever that means. Or certainly there's tight credit, it appears. Uh, is that more likely to slow down the economy, Sarah? 
I think it is because the consumer and the employment market has been what is holding up the economy here. And with the mini banking crisis that we saw, we expect banks to tighten credit and that'll make it tougher for the, for the consumer. And just thinking about banks more broadly, they're going to probably have issues going forward with tighter regulations, tighter capital requirements and pressures on their net interest margins, even though we saw today with J.P. Morgan an unusually positive uh, net interest margin, net interest income for them. But I think that was unusual and will normalize to the downside going forward. So I think that a lot of it depends on how much credit conditions tighten. And I think there's a big difference between what's happening with regional banks and what's going to happen with the major national banks. Um, what I hear from my contacts at, at the big banks is that we are not tightening credit conditions, but what we are doing is adhering more closely to our own lending standards. So a very mild tightening of credit conditions, whereas the regional banks, um, some have been under pressure and conditions are going to tighten significantly. So then the question becomes, what is the impact on the economy? I think that um, it's certainly going to uh, be uh, a negative, a source of negative pressure, but at the same time, I also believe it could be a positive in that the Fed sees that some of its work is being done for it by those tightening credit conditions, and then, of course, de decides not to hike rates any further. Exactly. What about that, Sarah? Are the credit conditions actually doing the Fed's job for it? Does it make it less likely it will actually have to have one and done? I think credit conditions did some of the Fed's job in March. A couple of weeks before the March Fed rate hike, markets were expecting 50 basis points. The banking crisis took 25 basis points off of that, and we just got 25 going forward. I agree with Christina. Regional banks are more at risk than larger banks, but these large deposit flows that we've seen come from regionals to large money center banks likely moderates from here, and we probably even see some attrition from that going forward. And then the larger banks also have these capital markets businesses that are down significantly, which is going to be an issue going forward. In the larger bank category, We'd stick with diversified companies like Morgan Stanley because of their strong wealth management business or ING. But generally, we're not positive on banks overall because of the structural issues they're going to have going forward, which started over a year ago. And that is exactly where we're going to turn next, where we should be putting our money given this uncertainty. Sarah Malik of Nuveen and Christina Hooper will be staying with us as we get some investment advice from them in these uncertain markets. That's next on Wall Street Week, and we are on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate, and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Inflation in America. It's a problem that has come and gone every time but this one. Inflation previously was strictly a wartime phenomenon, starting with the period during and after the revolution and returning virulently, even more virulently than lately, at the time of the Civil War and World War I. What was different was that periods of deflation always followed. Indeed, the compound annual rate of U.S. inflation since 1790 works out to only 1.2%. What's different about inflation in the last 40 years is not its height, but its length. That was Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in January of 1981, another time when inflation was proving harder to get under control than markets would have liked. The top movie back then, that week at least, was The Incredible Shrinking Woman, starring Lily Tomlin and directed by Joel Schumacher. And the number one song? Well, that was Starting Over by John Lennon. Still with us are Christina Hooper of Invesco and Sarah Malik of Nuveen. So, Christina, let's start with you. Given that what we're having with inflation, trying to get under control, what the Fed is doing, what does that tell investors? What the, should they be doing right now? So, David, what I think is uh, it's telling investors right now is that there is an awful lot of uncertainty out there. We don't know what the Fed's going to do. Sarah and I differed in what we expect, and I think that's very, very true. Markets don't know what the Fed is going to do. And in addition, what we have is this big unknown about the debt ceiling. And will it be easily resolved, or will it be a problem like it was in 2011? And could it be even worse than what we saw in 2011? Um, so this is an environment that I think you want to be defensively positioned in tactically, though, um, waiting for a change. And what is that change going to be? Well, to make sure the banking crisis is behind us and also, of course, making sure the Fed hits the pause button uh, and we are poised. Uh, that, to me, means we'll be poised for a different market environment, one that tends to be more risk on. Christina, when you say defensively, I think cash. Money markets are returning some pretty nice returns right now. Are you talking cash? I am not talking cash. I'm talking about within equities um, being more defensively positioned in terms of technology, healthcare, uh, consumer staples, uh, utilities, uh, within fixed income um, being more cautious, having investment grade credit. Um, so within alternatives, um, overweighting gold and underweighting cyclical commodities. Uh, so that to me is being defensively positioned, but also recognizing that this this market, could, market regime could turn soon um, if we get that pause and if we get more clear signs that the banking crisis is behind us. So Sarah, you're a chief investment officer at Nuveen. Where are you putting your money? We're advising our clients. Overall, our theme is quality, making sure you own companies that are resilient and can, can survive lower earnings and a recession. So starting with equities, dividend growers. These companies tend to increase their dividend over time, so it gives, it gives clients income. And also, they tend to have strong balance sheets and strong free cash flow because they're able to grow their dividends. Uh, you know, Surprisingly, we also like emerging markets. That's an area that we don't think of as, as sort of low beta. But with China reopening and the dollar likely weakening as the, as the economy slows in the US, and 
and valuations on their side. We like emerging markets for a little more bang for your buck. In fixed income, we're looking at high quality, high yield. Again, the quality theme and also double B rated corporates where you can reach for yield and get a little stronger return. And then real assets are interesting. Our biggest, our top pick coming into this year was infrastructure. The components of that are waste management and utilities. Even during a recession, we take out our, our garbage and we still turn on our lights. So that tends to be a recession resilient sector uh, going forward. Those are the areas that we like across the so board. Sarah, just to press you a little bit, do you have any good examples of what you call dividend growers? Sure. So it's across the board. It's not growth versus value. A company like Linda, which is an industrial gas company, they tend to have you know, strong margins, strong pricing power, high quality company, and nice yield. Um, these are the companies that we like. Going uh, Morgan Stanley is another company. We just talked about that within financials. Uh, that's our, you know, the company we like in a sector where we're, we're not as positive on. But they have a nice dividend yield. All these companies that have a nice yield and also tend to increase their dividend going forward are companies that fall into the dividend grower category. Okay, this has been a terrific discussion. Thank you so much for being back with us. That's Sarah Malik. She's CIO of Nuveen and Christina Hooper of Invesco. As we enter banks' earnings season, investors are paying close attention to evidence of continuing effects of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and government intervention to protect depositors. To take us through the likely effects, we welcome back now Glenn Hubbard. He's Dean Emeritus and Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia Business School. Dr. Hubbard, of course, served as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush. So, Glenn, thank you so much for being back with us. So, we've paid a lot of attention to what's going on with banks, particularly regional banks, what's happened here. What are the obvious effects and what are maybe some of the more subtle ones we may be missing? Well, great question. An obvious effect is you're seeing deposits move from smaller and regional banks into money center banks. You're seeing a lot of questioning of the financial health of many regional banks and a lot of concerns about where the line is drawn in deposit insurance. We're sort of at the worst spot now where we don't know will it be expanded a lot? Is it going back to where it was? But to me, there's some less obvious but bigger issues having to do with a credit crunch. You know, a lot of commercial real estate lending, a lot of commercial and industrial loans, uh, certainly in the heartland of the country, are made by small and regional banks. And so even if depositors are safe, the credit crunch may provide uh, quite an impact on the economy and on the Fed's job. What could the possible effects be on the real economy, if I can call it that? I mean, we all care about banks, regional banks. We don't want to wish them ill. But could there be broader ramifications for the economy overall? Well, of course. If, if banks are tightening lending because they really don't see good things to which to lend, that's certainly fine. But if banks are very worried now about the loss of deposits, no one wants to be the next Silicon Valley bank, or fears of needing more capital, and then constrict loans and real estate projects can't happen, small and mid-sized businesses can't get loans, that becomes a quite large effect on the economy. From the Fed's perspective, that's like thinking there's some extra rate hikes happening in addition to the ones that the Fed is doing. And so the credit crunch may well crimp activity going forward, although it will help the Fed bring down inflation. So, so let's go back to your question about deposit insurance and where we are on that, because we have some people like Bob Diamond, for example, formerly Barclays, saying we should at least insure up to a million dollars of deposits, maybe have unlimited. If you were back in your old job advising the President of the United States, what's the right answer for the banking system and therefore for the economy overall? What would you advise him? What do we really need from our banks? I would say let, let's start with what uh, can't be right. Like the current law wasn't right. The, the limit was too small to deal with the modern economy. And the Treasury or the Fed would try to move to increase it whenever we'd get into trouble. So that's not good. 
unlimited, I don't think is a very good idea. That takes away any incentive for depositors, even a very large size, to monitor the bank. And where to draw the line is hard, because what you would want in principle is the payrolls of small and mid-sized businesses, individuals' transactions accounts to be okay, but those could be large numbers. Here's the concern. The higher we take that limit, the more we push for more regulation of banks. It's not going to be the case that the taxpayers insure all deposits in the country without changing what banks do. And going to our earlier conversation just a moment ago, banks are very important in lending in some activities. So I think we need a more fundamental conversation about what do we want banks to do and how are small and mid-sized businesses and real estate going to get credit? So, Glenn, one of the things that maybe goes unsaid uh, largely is sort of a desire to preserve regional and specialist banks across the country. We have something like 4,500, I think, right now, banks across the country. Is that too many? Can I ask that blunt question? Well, I think we, we've always had too many banks uh, in the United States, certainly relative to any of our peers. That said, while I don't know that we have a policy objective of preserving particular community or regional banks, we do want to preserve the lending activities there. So I don't think it's the case that if all deposits in the United States suddenly moved to the four largest banks, that we'd have the same mix of lending. That's what I meant by we really need to step back, we thinking of the Fed or even the Congress, as to what we want banks to do. But we're on an unhealthy path now of playing with deposit insurance without thinking about the future. Glenn, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Glenn Hubbard of Columbia Business School. Coming up, we wrap up the week once again with our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
Street Week. I'm David West, and we're joined once again by our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, great to have you with us again. Tell us where you think the economy is right now. We got a raft of eco numbers in, CPI and others this week, that some people interpret as indicating that maybe actually the Fed is having its way, that the economy is softening, inflation is coming back down. I think it's very hard uh, to read, uh, David, but I, I think I see some growing evidence of uh, stag, but some real continuing concern about inflation um, as well. And that's a tough uh, combination. On uh, the stag side, it does look like uh, Defaults are rising. It does look like the flow of uh, credit is coming down. Headline retail sales uh, were not strong, although the internals are less uh, are less uh, clear. So I think you have some grounds for uh, concern about what's happening with uh, real activity on a forward-looking uh, basis. And the while the CPI and the PPI numbers surprised a bit in a favorable direction. You saw one-year inflation expectations from the University of Michigan uh, pop up, and the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, which I actually think is a better indicator of what's happening in the labor market than the monthly average hourly earnings, that popped up a bit um, last month uh, as well. So I think we're still looking at a very hard uh, to read economy. I don't see inflation as on a secure path down to the 2% uh, target unless the economy turns, o turns over uh, a bit. So I think the Fed has very difficult uh, choices ahead of it. So, Larry, let me make it even more complex, perhaps, and that is where we are with credit right now. There's a lot of reports right now that credit standards are going up in the wake of those bank, if I can call them, tremors that we had. How do you factor that into it? Could that help the Fed a bit, really curtail some of the inflation? Look, I don't think there's any question, David, but that some Fed work is being done by uh, tightening of credit. So there's definitely that effect. The question is, how large is it? I thought prior to the tremors in the banking system that there was a chance the Fed funds rate would have to get up to six and that it was certainly more likely than not that it would have to get to uh, 550. What's very hard to know is whether that action in credit, which is reinforcing the Fed, whether that's three moves uh, worth of reinforcement, whether it's only one move uh, worth of reinforcement, and that's the judgment the Fed's going to have to make on an ongoing uh, basis. I'm surprised still that markets are expecting as large a set of rate cuts over the next two years as is currently uh, priced in because it seems to me that we're not very likely to get six or eight rate cuts over the next two years unless the economy is headed towards recession. 
And certainly recession of a substantial sort is not what's priced into the stock market or for the most part priced into high yield credit. Larry, let's talk about something we haven't talked about that much, which is oil. There was reporting by Bloomberg this week that really suggested there is something of a rift growing between the United States and Saudi Arabia, that if anything, Saudi Arabia is getting closer to President Putin in Russia. And the question is, what does that do potentially for the price of oil and therefore at least headline inflation? How big a problem do you think this is potentially? Look, I think what's happening in the Middle East, and it's the Saudi... Um, uh, Russian thing that you just referred to. It's the Chinese brokered um, restoration of diplomatic relations between uh, Saudi and Iran, and Iran is a symbol of something that I think is a huge challenge for the United States. Uh, we are on the right side of history with our commitment to democracy, with our resistance to aggression in uh, Russia. We are very much on the right side of history, but it's looking a bit lonely. Larry, I know you spent the week at those meetings, the IMF and the World Bank in Washington, D.C. What did you see, what did you hear about that very subject? They, that is, the extent to which maybe we may be breaking up, into, if I can call this, trading blocks. Uh, where people trade with one another, but actually we're moving away from globalization. We're not necessarily all on the same page. I think there's a growing acceptance of fragmentation and maybe even more troubling, I think there's a growing uh, sense uh, that ours may not be the best fragment uh, to be associated with. Somebody from a developing country said to me, what we get from China is an airport. What we get from the United States is a lecture. We like your values better than we like theirs, but we like airports more than we like lectures. And so I think that what's at stake in some of these really technical discussions that they're always having here about debt relief or about the future of uh, the World Bank is not just uh, a bunch of stuff about lending money to promote uh, different economic activities or to make development more sustainable, but what the broad structure of the system is going to be. And if the Bretton Woods system is not delivering strongly around the world, there are going to be serious challenges and proposed alternatives. Larry, your name came up actually in connection with these meetings as people noted that the IMF uh, is really having a different projection on long-term interest rates, particularly the neutral rate over the longer term, saying it's going to come right back down to pre-pandemic levels, uh, whereas you have been saying that's not necessarily the case. Where are you on that issue? Look, I was in a way, glad that the IMF was resurrecting and talking about uh, the secular stagnation theory that I pushed so hard between 2013 and 2019. And certainly I recognized uh, all the various arguments they were uh, making. And it's certainly possible that they will turn out to be right. My own sense is that given the huge volumes of government debt that have been run up, 
given the very large flow deficits that are in offing, and given the large amounts of private investment that are going to be devoted uh, to uh, the renewable energy transition and devoted to friendshoring and increasing resilience, my sense is that the balance in the supply and demand for funds is going to be more towards demand. And that's going to mean higher real interest rates going forward than we had uh, before the pandemic. And so I'm not expecting that we will see uh, a huge return to the secular stagnation situation. Larry, in your opinion, how does money supply figure into your analysis of the economy overall? There was a lot of talk this week by some economists actually saying that in fact the fall in the money supply, particularly M2 with respect to the United States, really indicates that in fact we're going to go, if anything, into a recession, that we're not going to worry about inflation anymore. David, I would describe myself as post-monetarist. I think when we started paying interest on reserves. And so if a bank or somebody had an account at the Fed, it was kind of just like a interest-bearing account. And so money was no longer special by virtue of not paying interest. When we had that change in our economy, I think this whole concept of monetary aggregates as substantial predictors of what's going to happen lost uh, a lot of its uh, force. And so I'd have to say that money stock is pretty far down on my list of indicators to follow. Thank you so much, Larry. Always great to have you with us. Our very special contributor, Wall Street Week, he's Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Finally, one more thought. Longing for the good old days. Change is hard. Just when we think we have things figured out, the world goes and changes on us. Take inflation. After Chairman Volcker administered his harsh medicine of rate hikes, a much tougher approach to inflation, which uh, led to uh, nearly 20% official interest rates. Um, hard to believe now, hard to remember, um, at a time when inflation was also in the high double digits. We thought we'd left that problem behind us. We even fought to get some inflation back into the system. It was a big thing to start this um, rate increases. I think the fact that they have them to four and three quarter to 5% now, they'll be a little bit higher probably before they go on pause. And I think if inflation is around 3% plus or minus, uh, they'll be pretty pleased. But that all changed last year when that stimulus finally kicked in and reminded us of the bad old days. We are seeing inflation coming down. It's come down by about 45% since the peak, but we still have more work to do. But it's not just inflation that has shifted on us. What about all those banks that thought there was nothing safer than long-term treasuries as investments? The basic issue that, you know, they took all of these big deposits and invested them in long-term treasuries and had a gigantic mismatch where, again, it should never have occurred. Now it turns out that what was a safe haven has turned into a lot of unrealized losses on balance sheets. You have this bank that uh, has deposits from very concentrated, highly volatile depositors, and you have a balance sheet where, they, where they've invested long in treasuries, and when interest rates spike, um, they're underwater. 
This week, we were reminded that it's not just economics and banking where we have our expectations shaken to their core. Now we hear that Tupperware, that iconic plastic system for keeping food fresh, plan to have or attend the Tupperware party soon, may be going out of business. Shares of Tupperware falling 50%, the most since 2020, after the company said that it hired financial advisors to help improve its capital structure and its ability to even stay in business. The company dates back to 1946, when Earl Tupper, yes, there was indeed a Mr. Tupper, developed it in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Part of its claim to fame was the way it was sold in Tupperware parties thrown at homes by women looking for a new way to make a living after men came back from the war and took all their jobs back. But however things work out for Tupperware, there are times when change is actually for the better. Take the iPhone, something that some of us have grown all too attached to. So attached that we may have forgotten what came before. The Blackberry, which we don't miss all that much, no matter how iconic and cool we tried to make it at the time. We wear cool suits, we wear shiny shoes, we're the Blackberry Boys. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.